please remain standing for the reading of God's word from Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 to 11. Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 to 11. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? whose slaves you want to be once more. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. It's God's word for his people today. You may be seated, and let's pray once again and ask for God's help. God, we do need you. We are needy for you. And you alone have the words of life. So where else can we go? So we are here humbly pleading that you would feed us by your word. And by that feeding, make us more like your son, Jesus, we pray for the glory of your name. Amen. One of my favorite movies is The Shawshank Redemption. It's a story of two imprisoned men and their fight for hope and redemption. Uh, And there's a minor character in the movie called Brooks. As an old man, ran the prison, and he has spent his, most of his life behind bars. And after decades, he is being released on parole. And so soon after he gets that notice, you would think he'd be relieved. And yet what his friends find him doing is taking another prisoner hostage and threatening to kill him. And these guys are trying to calm him down And Brooks says, this is the only way they'll let me stay. Finally, the guys talk him out of it, and bursting into tears, Brooks drops to his knees, drops the knife, and relents. And later, when the two main characters talk about this, one of them can't understand why Brooks would do this. And the other main character says to him, he spent his entire life behind bars, and it's the only thing that he knows. Being locked up, had become his security, his safety, really his identity. And so later, when Brooks is released, he tragically can't figure out how to live in the new freedom he has. And he writes a letter to his friends still in prison about struggling uh, to adjust to his new world and freedom. And he confesses that all he wants is to return to prison. And the theme isn't new to Hollywood. We find it in the pages of the Old Testament in the story of Israel's wilderness years, too. After their release from Egyptian slavery and with God's miraculous provision of life and his presence with them and manna from heaven for them to eat, they complain in Numbers 11, saying, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt. That cost nothing. Cost nothing. They forgot they were being killed and whipped and beaten and in chains. But it cost them nothing, this fish and the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the garlics and the onions. But now our strength is dried up and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. And they disdainfully look at God's gracious provision to live in the miraculous freedom God won for them. Yet there they are, staring at God's gracious provision and longing for Egyptian chains and food. They say, it didn't cost us anything. 
Forgetting it cost them their own lives and freedom. They're free, but they're longing for the days of slavery. And this just wasn't just a one-time occurrence. Just a few chapters later, after hearing the spies report about giants living in the land God promised them, they complain again in Numbers 14. Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. And now, in the New Testament, in this letter we've been looking at, the Galatians are acting just like the Israelites. They long to go back to the comfort of their chains. And Paul has argued since the beginning of chapter 3 that God's plan to save sinners is and always has been by faith and not by works. That God promised Abraham salvation uh, and blessing, and God justified Abraham by his faith in God's promise, not by any work Abraham did or would do. And so the law, which was then given 430 years after God's promise to Abraham, didn't cancel that promise, but made the promised salvation clearly necessary. The law makes clear that we need a Savior because not only does the law prove we can't save ourselves, our failure in keeping the law brings us under its curse. But Jesus Christ is the promised Savior who doesn't just bring salvation and blessing. He is himself salvation and blessing. And the law was meant to drive us to him, to the one who is salvation and blessing, to the one who is the promised offspring and heir of Abraham's promise. And so it is all of grace that by faith alone in Jesus alone, that we who were once slaves are now sons, sons of God with a full inheritance, which we already are participating in by faith. We have the Holy Spirit confirming in us that we are sons, and we also await fully that day when the inheritance will be ours. And yet the Galatians are in danger of throwing it all away. Like Israel in the wilderness, they have God in their midst and his goodness all around them. They have their, the Holy Spirit within them. And yet, yet they long for the comforts of their past slavery. And so Paul responds with a reminder, uh, the reality and the repeated plea. There are three points today if you're a a note taker. Uh, The reminder, the reality, and the repeated plea. So first, Paul begins with a reminder. Look at verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. So Paul reminds us of our life prior to God saving us, and he does so in two ways. We didn't know God, he says, and we were enslaved. We didn't know God, one. Throughout the Old Testament, knowing God is more than knowing facts about God, knowing a lot of things about God. It's how those facts, the truth of who God is and what he has done, how knowing those things then leads to a personal covenantal relationship with God. So when Moses recalls Israel's rescue from Egyptian slavery, he says this later in Deuteronomy chapter 4. 
He says this, to you it was shown, that's God's miraculous mighty acts, to you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God and there is no other. And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence and by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you, he did that to bring you in, to give you their land for an inheritance, as it is this day. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven, above and on the earth beneath, and there is no other. Why, why did God rescue them? Not just so that they would know about him, but to bring them in, to know that there is no other God, and to lay it to heart, to take hold of it, to live with him, and to live out that truth. So God saved his people from slavery by his power and his presence so that both they and their future generations would not just know about God, but would live with him and worship him alone as the only true God. So not knowing God isn't simply an intellectual deficiency. It's just not that you, you, you can't fill out a quiz about God and get a good grade. Not knowing God is not having a personal, relational, life-changing, life-shaping, life-reorienting, heart-reorienting knowledge of the only God. And Paul reminds the Galatians of the time when they didn't have that. They didn't know God. They were far off without God, without hope. They didn't have Christ. They didn't have the Holy Spirit. They didn't have the promised blessing. They didn't have an inheritance because they weren't sons. They were slaves. So secondly, then, we were enslaved. We didn't know God, Paul reminds, and then he reminds them that they were enslaved. In addition to not knowing God, they were also enslaved to false gods. They gave their love and worship to things that not only enslaved them, but never delivered what they promised. Why? Why can false idols, things that are by nature not God's, why can they not deliver what they promise? Because they're not God. <laughs> they lie, saying we'll find all we want and need in them. But rather than giving the freedom we long for and seek, and the freedom they promise, they enslave. They, they, they turn around and chain us. We don't really have idols of stone or wood in America, but idolatry is alive and well in our country. I mean, the false gods of wealth and power, sex and autonomy, and on and on we could go, are all around us and still powerfully enslave. We know, we know this. We see it. I mean, think about it. If your god is wealth... No matter how many personal fortune milestones you reach, it's never enough, right? There's always just a little bit more to have. There's just, I can always get a little bit more of a buffer to get me through the next downturn. Or a little bit more to give me some security just in case so-and-so. And even, even when the false gods deliver, even when you hit a payday, there's always someone else that's got a little bit more. Yeah. And you break back on 
the hamster wheel. You're enslaved. Because the God always just promises next time. Okay, this time, it's, but next time. If you get there next time, it'll be, it'll be what you finally want. And that's slavery, Paul says. That's slavery to things that are by nature not God's. And friends, if you don't know God, you are enslaved. And the people around us who do not know God are enslaved. They might not have chains on. They may boast about their freedom to live and do whatever they want and choose. But if you don't know God, not only are you enslaved to things that will never give you life, they're leading you in chains to death. And brothers and sisters, that was our story too. It doesn't mean we don't speak truth to these things among our neighbors and the nations. But it should remind us that we too didn't know. We were blind, dead, lost. We too were enslaved. And the way forward in the Christian life often begins by reminding ourselves of our past. That we too were once without God and enslaved. But Paul doesn't only remind them of their past. He points secondly to their Reality, their present reality. Look at verse 9. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God. So in contrast to their past state of not knowing God, their present reality is that they have come to know God through the preaching of the gospel and their faith in Jesus Christ. That's what Paul's saying at the beginning of chapter 3. You were enslaved, but I billboarded Jesus Christ to you, and you looked and saw, and he set you free. He set you free. It was through the preaching of the gospel and their faith in Jesus. And so we have this reminder of their past and their present reality, and this contrast is emphatically emphasized. You once were slaves. Formerly, you did, didn't know, but now. And I'm not sure what your favorite words in the Bible are, but unless this is your first Sunday with us, you know what one of mine is. And one of them is this amazing word of contrast, but, because it helps us see the glory of God's marvelous grace. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I see. I once didn't know, but now I know. But now, once I was enslaved to things that were not God's. But now come to know the God of life. And that's why uh, Paul talks about it in terms the salvation from sins in terms of knowing God. You have come to know because that's, he gets that from Jesus in John 17. Jesus says this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. What's eternal life? When, when I was little, I would have answered that phrase, going to heaven. That, that's not wrong. It's just not fully true. What are we going to be doing in heaven? Just going to heaven for eternity sounds boring. And actually, if you ask a lot of people around you, a lot of them don't want to go to heaven because they think it sounds boring. <laughs> we just need to fill it out a little bit more. What is eternal life? Knowing God. The only true God. 
the infinite God of life and joy and blessing that we can never get bored with. We will never be bored with throughout all eternity because we'll never plumb the depths of him and his grace for us in Jesus Christ. We know God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. That's eternal life. And we've come to know God. And this goes far beyond knowing facts. Not that I know about God. I know him. The saving knowledge of God in whom is all life and joy and blessing. And I once was enslaved in sin and death, but now I've come to know God, the God of life through faith in Jesus Christ. And verse 9 then gets even better with even greater news. It's not just that we've come to know God, but that we're known by God. We're, We're known by God. I know who our president is. You do now, too, because Ken just prayed for him. But he does not know who I am. And you're like, well, come on. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's a pretty, he's got a, lot, he's a couple hundred million people. Of course he doesn't know you. Well, I know my U.S. senators from Michigan. They don't know me. I know my congresswoman. She doesn't know me. I know my governor. She doesn't know me. None of them know me. And you're like, okay, well, Michigan's still pretty big. All right, Auburn Hills. I know who the mayor is. He does not know who I am. You're like, well, he's the mayor. He's got better things to do than worry about you, even though I work a quarter of a mile away from him. You know what? I don't know. I don't, my, my city council members don't know who I am. And to be fair, I don't know who they are either. <laughs> but still, just stay with me. I mean, the people who run my tiny municipality don't know me. But the one true God who's created all things who sustains all things, who owns not just the city or state or country, but owns the fullness of the world and everything and everyone in it, knows me? Yes. Now think about it this way. How would the president ever know me? I would have to do something worthy of his time and attention. And most likely... I'm not picking on him. Most likely, it'd be one of his aides that heard something from one of their aides, from one of their aides, from one of their aides that said, hey, you should take a look at this dude, right? And then they would just use that for their own political gain. They still, they wouldn't know me to know me. They would know me to use me for some election or some this or some that, right? That's how it works. But God knows me not because I accomplished something worthy of his attention. It says, rather than known by God. It's passive. It means God took the initiative in entering into a personal, saving, covenant relationship with those who were once enslaved to things that were not God's, and they liked it and had nothing to offer God. He did not think, if I save them, and begin to know them, I'm going to get something from them. God does not need anything from us. That's why it's so amazing that he chose to know us in the first place. He does not come to know us because there's something worthy in me or something worthy I could do for him. It's simply because he chose to. He just chose to know us. And remember, this follows verses 1 to 7 which we looked at last Sunday, and saw that God makes those who were once slaves his sons with the right of full inheritance, all by grace, all by faith in Jesus alone. 
And we have the Holy Spirit within us confirming this shift of identity from slaves to sons as we cry out to God in prayer, Abba, Father. We're children, he's the Father. And that's our reality, that we know him, not just know him, but can call him Father. Because we did something to make ourselves worthy of his attention? No, we've come to know God because he first came to know us simply because he wanted to know us and make us his, to bring us in, to live with us as his people, and he our God. Remember the illustration I used a few Sundays ago uh, about being out at lunch following the worship and your server asks you, what's a Christian? Well, here's another phrase to have in your tool belt. I'm known by God. And I do wonder if we would speak about it in ways that the scripture gives us. That, that what, what our neighbors and the nations around us might begin to characterize Christianity with. Right? I mean, I, I'm not saying we can combat it all at once, but I think often we're known for what we're against, for the things we do, for the things we don't do, all of which are, have their place. They do. But what if we started in a different place other than, well, I go to, I, I, I. What if we started with, I'm known by God? Listen to J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God. He tells us how wonderful this really is to be known by God. What matters supremely, therefore, is not the fact that I know God, but the larger fact that underlies it, the fact that he knows me. I am graven on the palm of his hand. I am never out of his mind. All my knowledge of him depends on his sustained initiative in knowing me. I know him because he continues to know me. Which means tomorrow morning when you wake up and still know God, it's because he continues to know you. He knows me as a friend, one who loves me. And there is no moment when his eye is off me or is his attention distracted from me. And no moment, therefore, when his care falters. There is tremendous relief in knowing that his love to me is utterly realistic, based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me, so that no discovery can now disillusion him about me. Meaning he can't find out something about you that goes, oh, I made a mistake. I'm going to unknow even now. Like, that's how I often feel. That's what he says. In the way that I'm so often disillusioned about myself. And there is no discovery that can now quench his determination to bless me. Now, for some, the warning lights of man's centerness may have started to blink. And there is a danger of man-centeredness, to make ourselves the center of God and all he's doing. But we can't leave off the reality of our sonship and knowing God and being known by God because some take it too far. And some do take it too far. But in our fight against man-centeredness, I think churches like ours have fought off man-centeredness so much that we've removed ourselves from God's own saving of us. 
And the, the way back is not to swing the pendulum back all the way and say, God's all about me. But to, but to hold it in tension the way Galatians 4, 8 teaches us to. So think about it this way. Deuteronomy and Zechariah, so Old Testament and New Testament teach us these things. Deuteronomy and Zechariah say God's people are the apple of God's eye. We're his sheep in other places. The apple of his eye, his flock. It's, it, it's these words that point to God's people are so precious to him that he's aware of what's going on in their lives and will protect them like he will protect the own pupil of his own eye. That's the picture. That, that he knows you. He, he knows all. He has infinite, perfect knowledge. So there's never a moment when he's not aware of what's going on in you and with you so that his care is faltering. That's what Packer's getting at. It's the idea of God's love in action. He watchfully protects his people so that his purposes are accomplished. It's both. He watches his people so that his purposes are accomplished. And Jesus takes up this idea in John 10 then when he calls his people his sheep. He says this in John 10. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. And I know them. He just knows about them. He's like, I got 99 sheep somewhere. No, he knows them. And they know him. They follow him. They're near him. You see how knowledge is not just facts. It's this personal relationship. So the sheep follow closely to Jesus. He says, I give them eternal life, and they will what? Never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand because God is the one true God. Nothing will thwart his purposes to save a people for the glory of his name. He will have a people. They will be his God. And God's knowledge of his people doesn't center on them for their sakes alone, but to display his glory in saving them, to display the glories of his saving love and grace, which no one can stop. Because God initiates it. That's God's sovereignty and us knowing him. Intention, but together. If God initiates this knowledge, no one can stop it. Not even of us. Not even our sin. He remains faithful even when we're faithless. So you see, brothers and sisters, if God knew you before you knew him, while you were still blind and enslaved, and he knew you and loved you in spite of all that you were and did, then there's nothing you can do to make him unknow you. He's not going to be able to discover something that he didn't know prior to all this. And if that's true, if not even that can stop God from knowing you, then there's nothing else anyone can do to separate you from God's love for you in Jesus Christ. And, and, and we might know this, but what Paul is getting at is, is that the Galatians aren't walking in it. They might have ascended to it. They might be able to say it on a theological test and get the right answer, but they're not living in it. And so we must revel in God's love and his knowing us and live from being known by God. Live from that love that we're being watched over, so much so that nothing in the end will thwart God's purposes of saving a people for the glory of his name. He will bring many sons to glory. 
And so we cannot separate what verse 9 teaches us to hold together, namely that God's sovereign love and choice, that sovereignty and knowing us, we have to hold it together with the great privilege of knowing God and being known by him. And Paul says, this is the reality. And this was yours by faith. You didn't do anything for it. It was yours by faith. And so after the reminder of their past and pointing them to their reality, Paul then thirdly makes a repeated plea at the end of verse 9. He says, so if that was your past and this is your present, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? whose slaves you want to be once more. I mean, Paul urgently pleads with the Galatians to realize that if they turn to the Mosaic law as the basis, as the foundation, as the way to relate to God, they're turning from the freedom that is already theirs, and they're returning to slavery. He says, you're free. Even better, you've come to know God. Even better, God knows you. You're his sons. How can you go back? Why would you go back? And he equates law-keeping with the elementary principles of the world, which is kind of shocking, but remember what he's doing. He's not saying people who followed the Mosaic law were worshiping something that is by nature not God. It's not what he's saying. God is God. What he's saying is the elementary principles of the world and law-keeping are... are fundamentally being used the same way by the Galatians here as a way to earn salvation. And so he says earning salvation through works, even good works, is just as much slavery as is worshiping false gods. He says you were once slaves to things that were not God. Why would you turn to a slavery of law-keeping? They're both slavery. You're sons. Don't go back to the chains. Don't go back to things that are weak and worthless, he calls them. So weak is this word that uh, means it has an inability to produce the righteousness needed to stand before God. It, it can't do it. You're turning to something that is unable to do what you want it to do. You will not hear the verdict not guilty through law-keeping. It's weak. So Paul asks, how can you turn back to a way of life that not only enslaved you, but it didn't set you free into the blessing you currently have. And so again, you see this repeating theme. He said this back at the beginning of chapter 3 in verse 3. He said, are you so foolish, having begun by grace through faith in Christ alone, in the power of the Spirit, are you not going to turn to something weak in order to keep on going? That stuff didn't set you free in the first place. It couldn't. Why do you think you could keep on in it now? Not only is it unable to produce this life, they're worthless. It's worthless. And this doesn't just mean uh, it lacks value, like it has no value. It is that, but it goes further. It's a lack of value which makes that thing needy too. You get the difference? It's not, it's not like a penny. A penny's pretty worthless, unless you're going to Meyer and you want to ride a horse, okay? But even then, you get a horse ride out of it. It's not worthless. Okay? So it's not that. It's, it's that its lack of worth leaves it in a state of need as well. So Grace uh, just got her first job, and we had to open up her first checking account so can, he, she can have her first paychecks direct deposited. And the 
banker was like, do you have any money to put in it? And she looked at me. <laughs> and I looked at her. And she's like, I guess not. And I was like, that's right. That's how the world works. Welcome to getting a job, right? So it has zero dollars in it because she hasn't got paid. So let's say I go to her. It's March, what now, 28, 26? I don't know what it is. doesn't matter. Towards the end of the month. Mortgage is due on the 1st. And I go to Grace, and I say, you opened up a checking account. Mortgage is due in a couple days. I need a little bit of help. You have this checking account, so. And that's when she stares back at me and goes, remember, you didn't put anything in it. And I haven't put anything in it. It's got zero dollars. Like that, when it comes to sinners and what we need for life and righteousness and what we need to stay in the freedom that we have once we have that life and righteousness, turning to our effort and works to keep it, to keep going on, is like turning to an empty bank account. It's the needy turning to the needy to take care of the need. You see how ridiculous it is? And that's why Paul is so flabbergasted at them. He's like, what are you doing? Are you so foolish? How? You were once. You're already in it. Why would you go back to get back to the place you already are? Why are you turning to a, something that is needy itself to take care of your need? Our effort and works are weak and worthless to give what we need for life with God. And yet, that's so often where we turn or are tempted to turn. And the problem isn't just ignorance. It isn't that we just don't know. It's that we want this. That's what verse 9 says. It goes deeper than just a lack of facts or ignorance. It goes to our heart. We want to be slaves again. Do you see that? Why? Why are you going back to these weak and worthless things whose slaves you want to be once more? We want, we, there's something within the fallen human heart and the old man that stays with us even after salvation that longs for the chains of slavery. We want it. And I wonder if you can see why. Look at verse 10. I think verse 10 is helpful. You observe days and months and seasons and years. And this, this is, Paul doesn't really explain. And commentators argue about how, how this fits and what he's doing and what it means. And I think Paul's explaining the desire to be slaves. He just said this, and I wonder, really? They, why? It can't be that they want this. But it is, because the Judaizers likely told the Galatians to observe the Sabbath and the feasts in the Jewish calendar in order to be truly God's people. And the word observe here means uh, scrupulously keep, meticulously attend to. Not just like uh, we observe July 4th. Some of you just observe July 4th. Some of you 
will drive hundreds of miles to a state where you can observe July 4th and come home with lots of fireworks and food and costumes and hats and all the things, right? That's, that's the difference. We're not just talking about an acknowledgement, but a meticulously keeping. You're going through it, checking off scrupulously every box. This word highlights the extreme level of effort needed to keep the law. And the problem isn't with feasts or Sabbath. Romans and Acts tells of times when Paul participated in these things. So I don't think Paul's bashing the participation in them. He's bashing the observation of them. He's, he's not saying you can't participate in the Sabbath or you, you can't have a feast or you can't do... What he's saying is when you make the observance of them necessary for your salvation and your continued life in Christ, you are on the path of slavery. Why would those who've been set free from the impossibility of keeping the law? Remember, it's the impossible mountain to climb. And even if you try to climb it, you are then under its curse because you can't. It's impossible and you'll be cursed. So why would you want to go back? Why do you want this? If in the fullness of time Jesus has come, why are you turning back the calendar to days and months and seasons and years? And I think the answer is found in verse 10 this observance. We love control. We love to be in control. Humans love control, and we are proud. That's why we want to go back to slavery. Our desire to have something we control, like taking the Sabbath every week, observing these feasts, ordering my life around a calendar, doing this, doing that, it blinds me to the fact that when I turn to those things, it's putting me in chains. And I'm blind to the chains being put on my wrists because I love the sense of control that doing things gives me when I can check off the box. So I read my Bible this morning. Check. I prayed. Check. I attended worship. Check. I took the Lord's Supper. Check. Gave an offering. Bigger check. No pun intended. Served check. And on and on we could go. Check. And all those things are good gifts. Paul's point is not the participation. They're good gifts from our good Father. But when we make observing them the basis of my relationship with the Father, I'm turned to weak and worthless things that have enslaved and robbed me of the life and security I really desire. The problem is not the desire for security and love The problem is where I turn to find it, because I like to control. The problem is we'll never do enough. And even when we do, there's always a little bit more that I could have done. And so I'm enslaved. But it's not just control we desire. We desire the glory, too, don't we? The human heart resists grace because we're proud. And our flesh longs for the glory that belongs to God alone. Since the Garden of Eden, we've wanted to be God, to take his throne, to run the world how we want, to live how we want, to not honor God as God. We long for the glory that belongs to him alone. And we love the thought that we've contributed something to our salvation, 
So we resist the thought that there's nothing we can do to make God know us. We resist that. We, 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 there's always this temptation, there's gotta be something. Maybe he, he saw something that made him love me and save me. The human heart resists the thought that even if God did save all by grace, there's no way it's now all by grace that I continue on. It can't be that. There's gotta be something I have to do. In no way it's all that grace or all of grace that God keeps me, that God will keep me to the end. And the truth of these verses still ring true today, don't they? We really are no better than the Israelites or the Galatians. We have the goodness of God's saving mercy all around us. And Paul says not only just around us like the Israelites, within us, the Holy Spirit, the seal of the inheritance crying out within us, Abba, Father, and yet we're still tempted to long for the comforts of our past slavery. So hear Paul's repeated plea, brothers and sisters, don't turn back. Press further into Jesus. Press further into Jesus to know him, he says in Philippians 3. I press on to know Jesus Christ and the freedom that we have in him to live as adopted sons. So let's just apply this just for a moment. When you, when you desire wealth or you, you see it in our world, don't turn from Jesus to the things that enslave. Press further into Jesus. It's not that that desire in itself is wrong. It's where we turn then with it to fulfill it. So when we are tempted for wealth, then we have to remind ourselves what true wealth is. Where is true wealth found? Not in things that on the last day will burn, but store up treasures in heaven where moth and thieves don't destroy or steal. So it's not, what are we doing? Where's the heart motive? Where are we turning? Don't turn from Jesus to things that just enslave you. Press further into him because it's in him that we have all the blessings of the heavenly places and the riches of his grace at our disposal. What about power or longing to make a name for yourself? God, God knows this and he's already provided. So press further into Jesus for it's united to him by faith that you're a son of God with a full inheritance or love. Do you long for love? Press further into Jesus, for in him, in him alone, you will be both fully known, fully known, which is a scary thought. Because what happens when people around you fully know you? Not the things you hide from them and the facade you put on, but fully know you, especially in our culture. But here's a God who knew you before you knew him and fully knew you and also loved and accepted you fully. And in his presence is fullness of joy and pleasure forevermore and nothing can separate you from that love. Do not turn back to things that only enslave. And not only that, they never deliver what they promise. Press further into Jesus. And how can we do that? 
Well, the first step is reminding yourself of where you once were. We can be honest about our past, our slavery, our running from God. Don't stop there. Remember your present reality, that into your death and darkness, when you didn't know God, he knew you and loved you. And in his son, Jesus set you free and made us his son. And friend, the glory of the good news is that this can be yours too. And it's all by grace through faith, by turning in repentance and faith to the only true God today in Jesus Christ, whom God sent to save sinners through his life, death, and resurrection. And brothers and sisters, go out rejoicing today. And when someone asks you, what did you do this morning? And you tell them, and they say, what's that all about? Rejoice that not only do you know God, but that he knows you. Let's pray. The glories of your grace are so wonderful, Father. Seemingly too good to imagine. Too good to be true. But I pray for the grace that can only come from you to grab hold of the truths of these verses and have them reorder our hearts and lives around being sons of the Most High with a full inheritance, fully known and fully loved. And I pray that grace would then turn us into a community that treats one another with the same grace that you have treated us. That we're in a room filled with brothers and sisters known by the one true God, brought together into a family that for eternity will never come to the bottom of the greatness of who you are and what you've done for us in Jesus. And may that love not only permeate our lives together, but may it resound in our hearts and our lives and from our lips to you, that you would send us out in the power of your spirit to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ in whom we are known and loved. And we pray that more and more our neighbors and the nations would come to not just know you, but to realize the beauty of being known by you so that you would get all the glory, we pray. Amen.